The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss Moros, the Greek god of doom, which is to say the inevitability of death. He is the divine personage who personifies adages like, you can't cheat death, and you can't escape your destiny. In the context of Greek mythology, everyone is doomed, meaning doomed to die. Just as every person is born, so too must every person die. And when a person dies, this isn't something that was dictated by the moment. How a person dies isn't contingent on chance and isn't a permutation of events that, if a person's life was run over and over again in a simulation, could have been ordered differently, played out differently, and culminated to produce different results. In Greek mythology, how each and every person dies is already indelibly written by the fates in the proverbial ledger of destiny. Death, everything about it, is determined even before birth, and Moros, the god of doom, is the personification of the power that uncompromisingly and unyieldingly ensures everyone meets their fated end. In short, doom drives destiny. Doom is the guardrails that make sure people don't veer off the road and arrive at their death destination. Here's how this video is going to work. First, we are going to quickly go over Moros's family, who his parents were, who his siblings were, and generally, how he fits, in a structural sense, into Greek mythology. Second, we are going to see how his power and purview are complementary to those of his siblings. If you think of death as a process that begins before birth, when a person's destiny is decided, and ends when a person arrives in the underworld, achieving this requires the efforts of many gods working in concert, beginning with the fates and ending with Karan, the ferryman who conveys the souls of the dead across the river Styx. A person's death and their subsequent residency in the underworld is, in a morbid and macabre sense, the apotheosis of predetermination of the forces that ensure death can't be avoided, of the various ways a person can meet their end, and of the actual force that sunders the spiritual from the corporeal. In short, we'll see how Moros is a divine cog in the corpse-grinding, soul-snatching machine that is how death, the whole process of it, is conceptualized in Greek mythology. Third, we are going to see how fate, the inevitability of it, interacts differently with gods than it does for humans. And fourth, we are going to wrap up the video with one of the few times Moros features in a work in a capacity that doesn't involve the delineation of his family tree. Alright, let's get into it. 1. Family Tree Chaos, the personification of the Great Void, independently produced two primordial deities, Nyx, Night, and Erebus, Darkness. Nyx and Erebus then came together and from their union came three children, Ether, the bright upper atmosphere, Hemera, Day, and Karan, the ferryman who conveys the souls of the dead across the river Styx. Following this, Nyx emulated her father and, by herself, procreated an alarming array of children, which, with only a couple of exceptions, personify the harsh realities of life, such as pain and misery, both of which at a minimum tinge all of our lives on occasion, and old age and death, 
both of which are inexorable and inescapable for everyone. According to Hesiod, Nyx's children include Moros, Doom, Thanatos, Death, Hypnos, Sleep, the Oniri, Dreams, Momus, Blame, Oasis, Misery, the Hesperides, the nymphs who tend the trees that bear golden apples, the Mori, Fates, the Keres, Violent Death, Nemesis, Retribution, Apati, Deceit, Philotes, Friendship, Geras, Old Age, and Eris, Strife. 2. The well-oiled and finely tuned death machine of the ancient Greeks. Moros, as said, was the inexorable force that implacably propelled each person towards their fate. Fate, here, being a euphemistic way of saying death. Moros can't be bullied, bribed, or bargained with. The exact time and manner of each person's death was preordained. Determined, even, well before the moment each person drew their first breath and bellowed their first wail. What's interesting about many of Nix's children is how they fit together like the pieces of a puzzle. Death, the destiny, doom, and demise of it, was multifaceted, the totality of it comprising the powers and purviews of several gods coexisting and working in concert. Roughly sketched, you could formulate the process, ordering the personifying participants as follows. The Morai, Fate, Moros, Doom, Geras, Old Age, the Keras, Violent Death, Thanatos, Death, and Karan, the Ferryman. And if you wanted to make this process even more elaborate, you could include other gods who aren't the children of Nyx, such as Hermes and Hades. The Morai were the three goddesses of fate. Their names were Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos, and together they were responsible for conceiving and crystallizing the destinies of everyone. One aspect of this involved allotting a portion of good and a portion of evil to each person, meaning that, looked at one way, each person's fate is the manifestation of the balance of good and evil they were imbued with. Clotho was the spinner. This alludes to the threads of life that the Morai measured and cut. Lachesis was the caster of lots. This was indicative of her role, which was to cast the lots that determined the fate of each person. And Atropos was the unturnable one. This alludes to her responsibility of ensuring no person dodged destiny or forestalled fate, giving her substantial overlap with Moros, the next link in our death chain, whose entire purview involved and whose entire power was bent towards safeguarding the sanctity of what was predetermined. Next up we have Geras, Old Age, and the Keras, Violent Death, both of which, when thought of as a pair, can be viewed as the two ways people depart the world, plunge into the great unknown, and begin their spiritual existence. Of course, there's virtually an infinite number of ways people can die, but slowly expiring from old age and dying of natural causes, and the abrupt agony of violent death, seem like good bookends. Next up is Thanatos, the personification of death itself. He is distilled death, the actual mechanism that severs a person's soul from their body. Hermes, the divine messenger, is Greek mythology's psychopomp, meaning he guides the souls of the dead to the underworld, specifically to the shore of the river Styx, where, provided the proper rites were administered, souls embarked on a boat and were thus conveyed by Charon, the ferryman. 3. How Destiny Works Differently for Gods Than for Humans Theoretically, 
fate can't be foiled, destiny can't be diverged from, and Moros is the inexorable power that makes this so. Empirically, though, this isn't absolutely true. While humanity is entirely subject to fate, powerless against the battering and buffeting of its winds, gods do have a little more agency. Humans are locked in the trunk, while gods have one hand on the wheel and are peering through a dirty windshield trying to make sense of the road. Because of this, there are a couple of anomalous instances in which people do successfully change their fates, or, more accurately, successfully have their fates changed for them. And perhaps the best example of this is the story of Admetus and Alcestis, which comes to us from the poet Euripides in the tragedy titled Alcestis, which was written in the mid-5th century BC. Admetus was a prince, and after he succeeded his father as regent, Zeus sent the god Apollo to be his servant. This, Admetus' good fortune and Apollo's embarrassing punishment, was set in motion by Apollo killing the trio of Cyclopes who forged Zeus's thunderbolts. Not an act of wanton violence, but of revenge. Previously, Zeus killed Asclepius, Apollo's son. Asclepius was a prodigious healer, and such were his powers that he was even able to bring the dead back to life. Zeus believed that a mortal wielding this power would blur the line between mortality and divinity and disrupt the natural order of creation, so he struck him down. Rather than abuse his position, Admetus was kind and respectful, and an unlikely friendship blossomed between him and Apollo, who was later inclined to help his captor and companion win the woman of his dreams. Alcestis was the daughter of King Peleus, and he would only give away his daughter to the man who could yoke a lion and a boar to a chariot, a nigh-impossible task for a mortal man. Apollo did the deed, and Admetus and Alcestis were married. Unfortunately, their union, them deeply loving each other notwithstanding, was fraught with tumult and tragedy, though things would work out for them in the end. Apollo approached the fates and secured from them a singular privilege. If Admetus were faced with death, his death could be forestalled if another took his place. Later, when Admetus was still a young man, he became gravely ill, so he went to his parents and asked if either of them would swap places with him, a life for a life. They both declined, so Alcestis, impelled by the love she had for her husband, offered up herself in his stead. This was a devastating development for Admetus, who was left impotent and despondent when Thanatos, the god of death, came to collect the soul of his wife. But fortunately for him, serendipity was on his side. It just so happened that Hercules was in the area at this time. The hero learned of the tragedy that transpired, and quick to action as he was, he intervened, wrestled and overpowered Thanatos, and drove death away. His strength in this affair, the very essence of succor. So here we have two people who should have died but didn't the first saved by a bargain made by a divine benefactor, the second saved by the strength of Hercules, whose life was so legendary that he later ascended to the pinnacle of Olympus and became a god, showing that, in ancient Greek tragedy, if not in ancient Greek religion, destiny could be thwarted. Ostensibly, the story of Admetus and Alcestis is of two humans defying death. Really, though, left to their own devices, the currents of destiny would have dragged them out and pulled them under. It was really the efforts of a god and a soon-to-be god who gave the two lovers a new lease on life, 
For humans, destiny is ordained, but for gods, destiny is perhaps better described as obdurate, resistant to change but not unchangeable, something that on occasion can be bent but not broken. In the Iliad, for example, when Achilles and Hector finally meet in single combat, it is the decree of destiny that Achilles should triumph and that Hector should perish. From the perspective of the gods, who are watching the duel from the vantage of lofty Olympus, the impression is given that Zeus, were it his desire, could have upended the natural course of events and rewritten the story of the two heroes presently engaged in a mortal melee. Here's the passage. Zeus addressing Olympus. Come, you mortals, think this through, decide. Either we pluck the man from death and save his life, or strike him down at last, here at Achilles' hands, for all his fighting heart. But immortal Athena, her gray eyes wide, protested strongly. Father, Lord of the Lightning, King of the Black Cloud, what are you saying? A man, a mere mortal, his doom sealed long ago? You'd set him free from all the pains of death? Do as you please, but none of the deathless gods will ever praise you. And Zeus, who marshals the thunderheads, replied, Courage, Athena, third-born of the gods, dear child. Nothing I said was meant in earnest. Trust me, I mean you all the goodwill in the world. Go, do as your own impulse bids you. Then Father Zeus held out his sacred golden scales. In them he placed two fates of death that lays men low, one for Achilles, one for Hector, breaker of horses. And gripping the beam mid-haft, the father raised it high and down went Hector's day of doom, dragging him down to the strong house of death. I'd like to highlight three points relevant to the passage we just read from. Two phrases, his doom sealed long ago and Hector's day of doom, reflect the power that Moros embodies. Athena's distress at her father's words and the subsequent chastisement of her father indicate that Zeus could have altered events and Zeus bringing out the scales of fate to see what the natural course of events was shows that, while gods had some measure of control over fate, counteracting fate was rare, usually best avoided, and certainly not done lightly. Tying into this is one of Zeus's epithets, Zeus Moiragetes, meaning something like Zeus, master of fate. Four, a passage to wrap up the video. Quintus of Smyrna was a Greek poet who is thought to have lived in the 4th century AD. He is best known for his epic poem, Post-Homerica, or The Fall of Troy. The Post-Homerica picks up where Homer's Iliad left off and fills in the events that occurred between the end of the Iliad and the beginning of Homer's Odyssey. In other words, it recounts the events of the Trojan War after the death of Hector, including the arrival of the Amazon warriors, the death of Achilles, the dispute over his armor, the wooden horse stratagem, and the final sack of Troy. While Quintus's work is not considered on par with the epic masterpieces of Homer, it provides valuable insight into the later epic tradition and the continuation of the Trojan War saga. The post-Homerica serves as a bridge between the two Homeric epics and offers a cohesive narrative of the events that transpired in the interim. Here's the passage pertinent to Moros. So man to man dealt death, enjoyed the Caris and Moros, and fell Eris, and her maddened glee shouted aloud, and Ares terribly shouted in answer, and with courage thrilled the Trojans, and with panic fear the Greek. 
And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.